0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Degena Door, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Sabine Frustuck about her new book, Playing War, Children and the Paradoxes of Modern Militarism in Japan, published by the University of California Press in 2017. As stated in the introduction of the monograph, this book is about childhood, war, and play, In Playing War, Professor Frestek shows how children and childhood have been used in 20th century Japan as technologies to moralize war, and later in the 21st century, to sentimentalize peace. Professor Frestek, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, no worries. Professor, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. How did you become interested in East Asian studies and specifically in Japan?
1: (sighs) I grew up in Austria, and um, my parents and my entire family was always interested in other cultures and uh, traveled a lot uh, all around the world. And um, I had some interesting ideas about what Japan was like. And um, so uh, Japan, um, from actually very early on, interested me a lot along with other parts of Asia. But um, I settled on Japan partly uh, because uh, Japan seemed uh, so diverse in terms of uh, both having a very long um, cultural development as well as a modern society today.
0: Oh, I see. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, Now, can you tell us about how you came to write Playing War?
1: I've uh, done work on a number of uh, different issues, including the history of sexology. um, And I've also written an ethnography of the contemporary military in Japan. And in all of this work over the last uh, 20 years or so, the military and modes of militarization reappeared in unexpected places. For instance, in my work on sexology, it became clear to me that the military and conscripts, in particular, young men, in particular, were actually the largest, relatively homogeneous population that the state had access to and does a lot of data about uh, health, about literacy, about um, um, all kinds of issues were based on conscript exams. Um, By the same token, uh, when looking into how the contemporary military functioned and how uh, soldiers in contemporary Japan made sense of their role in a larger society and in the world and compared to other military organizations, I discovered that um, they um, were actually very thoughtful about Uh, what kind of images they project. Uh, They were very cognizant of the fact that they labored under the legacy of the Imperial Army and the Second World War, Asia-Pacific War. And so um, in a number of different contexts, the military popped up, and uh, together with the military also, the idea that it is uh, children that are open to education, manipulation, indoctrination. And so it matters to the military uh, in contemporary Japan, as well as it mattered to the military state in um, early 20th century and 19th century, late 19th century Japan, to convince the children first that uh, military and war are Uh, reasonable things or reasonable organizations are um, useful to the kinds of societies they live in.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Your work on Japanese masculinity and uh, the contemporary uh, military is also really fascinating. I urge our listeners to take a look at professor Frestek's other works as well. Um, So the book opens with a discussion on the vulnerability hypothesis um, can you explain what this hypothesis is um, that your book is trying to examine? Uh,
1: certainly. So the title itself or the name itself is really a play on Michel Foucault's repressive hypothesis or his critique of the repressive hypothesis. And uh, in his critique, he essentially unsettles and uh, challenges the idea that in earlier societies uh, prior to modernity, sexuality was essentially repressed uh, in particularly in France, of course, and in European societies. Um, And instead, he introduces the idea and then also shows how uh, this idea played out in another three volumes of his history of uh, sexuality. Uh, Instead, uh, there were uh, several forces at work, and modernity in particular did not bring liberation uh, or freedom uh, to sexual practice primarily, but rather a different regime of control, a different uh, regime of power that reorganized uh, reconfigured um, and resignified uh, sexuality and uh, various sexual practices and so, with that in mind uh, the vulnerability hypothesis i propose at the beginning of the book is addressing the notion in and this is a distinctly modern notion in in this uh, coherence in any case the notion that children are inherently vulnerable are inherently weak uh are in need of protection and so um by this vulnerability hypothesis, uh, by s- proposing this vulnerability hypothesis, I suggest that, yes, the modern uh, Japanese regime um, and, of course, along with the state, the education establishment, uh, the creative class, uh, a whole lot of um, educated and ordinary men and women uh, came to embrace the idea that children were really a separate uh kind of population that needed its own education, its own uh, consumer products, its own uh, kind of um, safety net, uh, securities, um, um, protection, education, educational institutions, welfare institutions, and legal systems. But at the same time, Uh, these same entities, including the state, also discovered and recognized children as incredibly useful in the pursuit of goals that are really working against children, such as war. And so it's this contradiction and this inherent contradiction, I think, uh, that I introduce with the notion of the vulnerability hypothesis.
0: Mm, This is indeed a really refreshing perspective that you're giving here. Um, So so let's start um, with the chapters of the book. Um, Chapter one is entitled Field Games, um, explores how children's little wars are actually connected and interacted with the grand game, a term that you use to refer to the grand uh, maneuvers of the Imperial Army and Japan's wars in Asia. So how have Japanese children learned to conceive war and play?
1: Yes, so the first two chapters uh, deal with these children's games. The first is in the the games in the field and the second uh, the games on paper and uh, with other kinds of toys uh, more or less inside. Um, What we know from historical records is that children have always played games in the field that essentially uh, pitch one group of children against another. But it was only... In the late 19th century and then uh, in the early 20th century, when children themselves to some degree began to adopt the adult language of war, of specific kinds of wars, uh, the Sino Japanese War at the end of the 19th century, and then the Russo Japanese War at the beginning of the 20th, and so on, that they started to adopt and make sense of their little battles in terms of. Military battles. And so we have this fabulous record of um, an 1850s story of two groups of boys uh, encountering each other and battling each other. And they envisioned themselves um, as the Japanese against the Americans. And of course, this is a reference to the Black ships uh, of the mid 19th century and the opening of Japan uh, to the United States. And so they. Uh, battle each other, um, and by uh, surely by mistake, one of the boys on the Japanese side uh, injures the leader of the other side that uh, represents the United States. And unfortunately, this other boy dies. Um, the The case is taken to court, and the court decides that the Japanese boy has done the right thing, and in fact, he. Um, isn't uh, being punished at all. In fact, he gets a stipend uh, for pursuing his uh, studies. And so it's this interconnection that is made both uh, rhetorically and um, in a playful way by children, as well as by adult institutions, like in this case, the court, uh, later um, uh, media and other kinds of institutions that begin to discover that these children's games can in fact be re-signified and uh, re-utilized in order uh, to prepare children, both in terms of their thinking, but also in terms of their physical preparation uh, for later adult uh, conflict. And so it's very, very interesting, I think, that even though Japan was at war uh, repeatedly, um, from the late 19th century to 1945, um, it's at that time, around the 20s, at the turn of the 20th century, um, and at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, that media still, when uh, children uh, play these games and uh, injure each other, and, and it happens repeatedly, that children fall into rivers. Uh, and died during these games. And so at the beginning of the 20th century, it's still very, very common for newspapers to say, uh, parents, watch out, Uh, be careful, make sure the children are inside in the evening, that they don't engage in these kinds of dangerous games. Um, And so it's very slowly at the beginning of the 20th century when uh, the adult world shifts and discovers Uh, the utility of these games and the uh, possibilities and the potential of these games uh, for adult goals. Children themselves comment in a variety of different ways about that. So we have records, for instance, from around the Russo-Japanese War at the beginning of the 20th century, where children um, are told about the Russo-Japanese War in school And um, they come home and they tell their parents, for instance, that on the next day, they're going to go out and fight the Russians and they might not return. And uh, the background to this, of course, was a teacher who framed one of their field uh, exercises um educational exercises in these terms. And so children adopted that kind of language and that kind of understanding. Um, there are other records from children themselves who suggest that uh, these games are really only fun when they play them among themselves and uh without adult supervision. And so there are different kinds of perspectives. But schools and even uh elementary schools and kindergartens at the beginning of the 20th century begin to adopt military-style exercises, shooting, so-called shooting practices in uh, their education. And so the kinds of um, games that children play become increasingly uh, incorporated and then re-signified within institutional contexts and then also controlled and commandeered by adults.
0: Yeah, this is really fascinating. Like like you argued in the chapter that, you know, this playing war really embodies um also this modern notion of continuous war, right? That um through playing childhood it's it's a sense of continuing into the adulthood. Um and chapter two, paper battles, like like you just said at the beginning, um also talks about how children involve or Um, conceive war and play. So Paper Battles looks at how children's war games were intertwined with the experience of nature, territory, and the empire. Can you Maybe tell us a little bit about how have children's games changed from um, nation building to empire building in the 20th century?
1: Yes, so this is very interesting because what we haven't talked about yet in our conversation are, of course, distinctions among children. We can't just assume that they were all the same and all the same all over Japan and urban and rural areas. So the way um, I think it's useful to think about these paper games is, of course, that they are played by children who might also play these field games outside, uh, but many more children also who don't play these games outside and exclusively play in... um, a perhaps urban context, perhaps in a middle class context, where they are inside and play similar games on paper. And so the empire um, perspective on this uh, has very much to do with how the games uh, play out on paper. So on the one hand, we have, for instance, uh, Sugodoku. These are Uh, Paper games where you uh, play with dice and depending on uh, your result, you move uh, a number of fields and each field then represents a particular activity or represents a particular uh, kind of um, uh, step forward. And of course, uh, particularly during the 1930s and 1940s, these moves forward were very much represented in... Uh, co- colonizing kinds of contexts. So for instance, you have a group of children landing at some shore, or uh, you have uh, children move through the field, but the way the field is structured is uh, uh, very much like, uh, for instance, um, railways, uh, pathways uh, that uh, mark at least a map of Manchuria, for instance. Um, And so uh, the the notion of continuous war here uh, is adapted to these children's games to primarily uh, under-emphasize the distinction between war and play and the distinction between a... Sugaroku map, for instance, so a play map, a game map, and an actual map that of course has been partly produced uh, by the military and the other kinds and uh, earlier kinds of explorers, of course. Um, and so the uh, the shift to uh, the empire as the main frame of these games very much has to do with how much of that empire, and how much of uh, these front lines is actually represented in children's games.
0: This is certainly really interesting. Um, And chapter three, let's just move on. Um, um, Moral authority of innocence examines um, this use value that you have um, introduced of children and the emotional capital that has been attributed to children. Um, Can you tell us more about these in the context of war as well as in peace and also um, maybe your theoretical approach and and the affect turn that you're taking here?
1: Yes, so uh, chapter three and four um, really look at the connections of children and war from a different uh, perspective and through the lens both of visual culture and the lens of. The emotionality that is attributed to children and to childlike things or child um, artifacts, including toys and uh, pictures and and games, of course. And so I've um, adapted Pierre Bourdieu's notion of social and cultural capital for these purposes. And I call this emotional capital. So it's less about. Um, the emotions children might have, but rather it's the emotions that we assume and that we attribute to um, the image of a child, for instance, the photograph of a child or anything that has to do with children. And so we need to understand that it's really the beginning of the 20th century in Japan when uh, a kind of children's culture emerges that is urban and modern and um, and driven by a capitalist uh, market economy. And so in very similar terms, um, the creative class uh, illustrators, uh, children's book authors, uh, producers of children's magazines and uh, uh, producers of toys understand that once A child is in the picture, literally in the picture. Um, Adults tend to have warm and fuzzy feelings about what the the picture is about. Um, So, for instance, um, in the 1930s and early 1940s, we have an enormous proliferation of images of soldiers with children. And so these are images that appear across a number of media. Um, First of all, of course, this is the time when photography really begins to thrive as a private pastime, as a pastime of the middle class. Family photography, photo albums, family albums become uh, a thing. And so it's that time, of course, when uh, we have an increasing number of children that are depicted in sort of children's versions of military uniforms um, that are depicted with uh, adult members of the families who are in uniforms um, and so on and so forth. Uh, So there's one place for that. Um, Then we have uh, children's games, children's magazines, books that constantly depict uh, Imperial army members um, that are often depicted as brothers, as uncles, as fathers who either embrace their own children at home, uh, for instance, in the context of departure to the front, or, uh, and this is much more uh, prevalent, are depicted encountering children behind the front lines in occupied territories after the battle, uh, in colonized territories. And what kind of encounters uh, do we see? It's always friendly encounters Uh, There's always, um, in in the Japanese case, it's not chocolate, it's usually caramels that are given uh, by uh, Japanese Imperial Army soldiers to Chinese children, to Manchurian children, to other kinds of children, uh, not uh, distinguished from, not distinguished uh, beyond the fact that they are not Japanese. Um, And so we have... The the in, these encounters are very very uh, prominent uh, across a number of different media, and so I suggest in this uh, chapter in particular that the moral authority of innocence, the assumption that children, particularly children under the age of twelve, uh, that they are innocent, actually is not a neutral comment. It's completely politicized here. And so we, in these materials of the 1930s and 40s, children are massively, depictions of children are massively used in order to redeem these soldiers, in order to uh, constantly signal to Japanese uh, children at home, and their adult uh, caretakers and other adults that Japanese Imperial Army uh, members do good things abroad. They rescue jo- children. They embrace these children. They behave just as lovingly um, right behind the front lines as they would at home with their own children uh, and other um underage faculty members. And so that's where I see the emotional capital of children at work um, massively exploited by a militarist imperialist state, uh, as well as the creative class that labors under uh, this particular regime.
0: Oh, these are certainly really penetrating observations that you're offering here. And and similarly, children um, do appear... Um, in various modes of querying war, the process of querying war um, as well that you talk about specifically in detail in Chapter 4. So what is the role for children in these modes? Are they also similarly exploited? Um, So, of course, the
1: interesting, one interesting um, aspect of military-societal relations in Japan is, of course, that Japan was a massively militarist uh, nation and empire until 1945 and um, uh, then broke with that tradition uh, very clearly um, after uh, 1945. Um, And so in the wake of the Korean War, of course, uh, the self-defense forces were established, uh, the current day armed forces of Japan. And for the longest time until very, very recently when the Abe administration uh, changed uh, the legal conditions under which, um, at least part of the legal conditions under which the self-defense forces operate, the self-defense forces were very, very self-aware and very co- uh, conscious of the fact that the Japanese Constitution, Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, explicitly prohibits Japan from uh, entertaining a standing army and uh, very explicitly prohibits Japan from waging war. And so particularly the ground self-defense forces, the army, Uh, Was very uh, self aware of these restrictions, was very cautious about uh, appearing in public. And so it was very uncommon, particularly in urban Japan, uh, and still is uh, very uncommon in urban Japan for members of the self defense forces to uh, be in uniform outside of their bases. And this, of course, is particularly the case for the army because the army uh, is. Sort of, um, uh, this is of course universal, but the army tends to be uh, the branch of the military that is uh, made most responsible for the defeat. Uh, And at the same time, in the Japanese case, uh, the Imperial Japanese Army, from all we know, has been uh, most involved in uh, war crimes. Um, So, in any case, uh, the current uh, armed forces in Japan very much labor under the legacy of the imperial armed forces. And so they've been very, very cautious uh, for decades and decades to produce images for public uh, consumption in terms of public um, relations efforts, but also particularly recruitment in the last few decades. um, And I think the, First deployments of the self defense forces at the beginning of the 1990s on peacekeeping operations uh, were a crucial shift. Um, In the last few decades, um, the military has come to the conclusion that it is, in fact, important, particularly for recruitment, uh, but also for their um, uh, sort of standing within society to produce. Uh, its own image, to not um, try as best as they can to be invisible as they have done for several decades, but to really think about what kind of images of themselves uh, they should be projecting to uh, the Japanese population at large, but also, and this is equally important here, also to um, other parts of Asia. Uh, that were formally under Japanese colonial rule, and um, of course, to the most uh, important ally of Japan, the United States. And so I list these three kinds of constituency because uh, that makes things very, very complicated uh, for the Japanese military. Uh, to its own population, uh, it needs, of course, to project competence uh, to the population. In other parts of Asia, it needs to project the um, understanding that the contemporary military is no longer the Imperial Army. Uh, The contemporary military uh, would never do the kinds of things that the Imperial Army has done uh, uh, across Asia. And um, to the United States, of course, it needs to also uh, project a somewhat different image, namely that it is ready to... Um, align itself with American armed forces that is ready to collaborate as a fully fledged partner and so on and so forth. So these are very different kinds of goals. And during the last few decades, and I've followed this very closely, both with with respect to um, public opinion surveys and with uh, material that the Japanese military produces uh, to create and really reshape its public image What they have done is to pick up on Japanese popular culture um, and ironically, paying attention to the enormous soft power of Japanese popular culture within Japan and globally has meant the reintroduction of children, uh, both in terms of child figures, as well as Uh, popular culture that uh, is uh, appealing to children into their public relations campaigns. And so in today's public relations campaigns, uh, in a lot of them, not all of them, uh, but a lot of them, uh, particularly those that are meant for domestic consumption and uh, Asian consumption, the military uh, uses things that have appeal. For the very youngest members of society. So, when you compare this, for instance, to an American um, uh, body of recruitment campaigns, and of course, we need to acknowledge here that in the United States as well, different branches of the military uh, pursue different kinds of images um, and so on and so forth. But uh, I think it's important it, if you look at this uh, from a distance and very broadly you will see that a lot of what the Japanese military does in terms of uh, shaping its public image and projecting uh, what they hope will be positively received is in fact designed uh, to appeal to the very young uh, parts of the population and is very much framed in terms that is aligned with popular culture, so there's a lot of cuteness. Um, there's a lot of navy uh, There's a lot of uh, also girlishness in uh, these campaigns. And so, if you compare this to, let's say, the United States or or some other militaries, of course, there's a lot of variation around the world. You'll see that uh, even though there are changes in in uh, around the world in what kinds of images military establishments try to project, Um, in many of them, there's a lot about military service will give you a competence that is applicable to civilian life. There's a lot about adventure. There's a lot about um, camaraderie, uh, about defense, about patriotism, about uh, the kinds of martial messages that have to do with a particular uh, kind of notion of what um, proper masculinity is supposed to be like. Um, And so I'm simplifying here, of course. We have a great variety of images everywhere. Um, But when you look at these campaigns, uh, the Japanese uh, look of it um, is very, very uh, soft uh, it's um, trying to be educational and educational in terms of uh, a very young population, and so in this um, at this particular moment, and this is very interesting in the twenty first century, we have sort of, sort of an echo of um, the wartime uses of children, of course, with very different messages, but it's the current. A uh, campaign apparatus, the public relations apparatus that have rediscovered, that has rediscovered the usefulness, the utility of childlike appeals and of the child as a whole cultural kind of complex for uh, the purposes of projecting a positive image of the military, both in terms of uh, competence and capability, uh, but uh, uh, even more so in terms of uh, the great variety of missions, uh, particularly the Japanese military engages today, including uh, disaster relief internationally and domestically
0: and peacekeeping. Oh, this is really fascinating. And and I guess our conversation now will lead us uh, perfectly into the epilogue, your discussions in the epilogue, The Rule of Babies in Pink. Um, so here you observe a dramatic move from the infantilization of war to the infantilization of peace in the 21st century Japan. Um, So when and why did this move occur? There are several moments throughout the book,
1: although this is not a comparative uh, book at all, but there are several moments throughout the book where I look up from the Japan case and look around the world or particular places around the world that um, give us further clues on how to make sense of the situation in Japan. Uh, The epilogue is such a moment where I look around and look at how do media around the world, how do other countries bring in um, children in the context of a war and peacemaking? And so what we discover uh, when looking around is very much that... The use of the child to uh, both appease and legitimize a legitimize war has sort of blended together, Um, and so we'll see this in the context of uh, situations like military organizations being involved in disaster relief. um, When you pay attention to what kind of media images are actually uh, projected by the uh, large uh, news uh, agencies and corporations you'll find that very very often you'll have uh, a member of the military, uh, preferably male, in full military gear carrying a baby um, and uh, very often this baby is dressed in pink uh, that's uh, just how things work with baby clothes I suppose Um but very often um, we have the, the connection between um, a particular, often very violent, disastrous kind of event. And so again, um, current um, uses of the military, of course, uh, are various and range from war and combat to disaster relief. And so we have the constant bringing together of uh, children and the notion of uh, children being deeply vulnerable and um, victims of uh, these events and um, war as one of them, and soldiers uh, who, of course, in some of these contexts uh, have committed um, acts of mass violence and yet are Uh, redeemed, so to speak, with images of uh, babies, preferably, or very small children uh, in the eyes of civilian populations at home um, around the world in various different contexts. Um, And so it's very, very important uh, to understand here that the kind of utility that children had um, in the war context of the early 20th century in Japan and in other places, uh, has now shifted in a in a much broader um, uh, context and is applied to uh, the kinds of uh, situations that make it very hard for us to distinguish what uh, where uh, the um, where war ends and where um, uh, peacekeeping operations begin for instance um and so what I observe here is the kinds of uses of children um in these images and in these reports today in fact um are not the um are, do not lie in the notion of the child being vulnerable and thus um primarily associated with peace but in fact are a reiteration of what we've seen in earlier times and of course we continue to see in certain parts of the world today Um, and the context of that is of course uh, war in in a number of different places
0: so lastly the epilogue argues and i quote here from the book that the infantilization tactics of both the war-making military establishment and military humanitarian missions have blurred the line between war and peace in today's highly globalized world. Um, can you maybe speak a bit more about this blurring of the line between war and peace, and maybe its future implications?
1: Yes, what I what I see in um, what I describe in the epilogue, um, and what you just uh, articulated as the blurring of the lines, of course, has to do with the very notion of how uh, the emotionality that we ascribe uh, to children is politically useful for a number of different goals. And that should make us pause uh, whenever uh, we um, encounter images or rhetorical attempts uh, to employ children um, in a number of political ways Uh, We should not fall into that uh, trap that just because there's a child in the picture with the military, that military action uh, is legitimate and will necessarily lead to a positive end for that child as well as for uh, the societies involved in general.
0: Well, thank you, Professor Frustuck. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. And thank you so much for sharing your incredible research with us. Um, I had a really great time reading your book. Um, But before we conclude our interview, could you maybe tell us a bit about your current research projects? What have you been working on recently?
1: Oh, I'm working on a number of different things. One um, is a, a history of gender and sexuality in modern Japan. Uh, that I hope to complete uh, within the year. And I'm also probing further um, the history of emotions uh, in Japan and uh, historically as well as contemporarily. And as you've seen in the book, I have an increasing interest in visual culture, and so I'm particularly interested in different modes of articulating uh, emotions in Japanese culture.
0: Oh, that sounds like a great project. I'm sure our listeners um, will also be certainly looking forward to it. And finally, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed reading your book, um, and I urge our listeners to pick up a copy of Playing War 2. Take care. Thank you so much.